Blog Talk Radio. This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just... I love that. Share your question or comments using the live chat feature on our website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Again, that's www.allaboutwinebtr.com. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Thank you much, people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. All right. Here we are, back for another show, another week of All About Wine. Had a good guest last week. It was fun. Uh, it was uh, the winemaker for Kendall Jackson Winery. Been around for a long, long time. And he was uh, he was on with us. Uh, and so, uh, so we've... Uh, no guest this week and no Mike this week. Mike uh, sent me a note saying that he couldn't make it this week. So you've got me. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a whole hour or not. And I realized something. I sat down to tune in. I sat down to get the show started. And Mike's the one that always hooks up Facebook. So without him connecting Facebook, I don't have Facebook going on tonight, which is not a good thing, obviously. Uh, so well, you're going to have to put up with me just on Blog Talk Radio and no Facebook, no Twitch, no anything else, it seems. Because, hey, like I said, he's the one that does everything. He's the one that does all the connections and all that stuff for all these other things. So we are good to go, I guess. we got some stuff to cover tonight. Odds and ends, as always. There's always some stuff interesting to talk about. Then there's always some stuff that's new in the wine industry to talk about. And there's always lots of stuff to say. So we will get right down into that right now. All right. Let's start out with this. This is out of the American Fruit Grower and Western Fruit Grower magazine from September 2020. And it is uh, entitled, well, let me see what this page here. Okay, that's it. It's entitled Hardship in the Heartland. And it's the spotted lanternfly. We've already talked about the spotted lanternfly before on the shows, but serious threat to something like 22,000 acres of grapes in the Midwest. Now, the Midwest, I... When I grew up, I was born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri, and we always referred to ourselves as the Midwest. Uh, No, I I find out now as I'm getting older, we were wrong all those years, and everybody else was wrong, because the Midwest is Ohio and Illinois and uh, Indiana, and that's the Midwest. The Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, that's the near west and then you've got the, the rockies and then the west but so we weren't the midwest we were mistaken all the years i was growing up by calling us the midwest we were actually the near west nearer to the east i guess me. and the midwest now is further east than i always thought so spotted lantern flies is a new invasive insect that I've been telling you about, and it's becoming a problem Uh, more and more and more all the time. Some growers and homeowners in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia, and Virginia 
and have discovered how devastating the spotted lanternfly is, or S4 abbreviation, SLF. In addition, <coughs> excuse me. In addition to grapes, the, the uh, spotted lanternfly attacks fruit trees, hops, hardwood trees, and ornamental plants. So that's why the USDA has invested countless amounts of monies in trying to slow the spread of the uh, spotted lanternfly from its origins in Pennsylvania. And that's really where they first noticed it in Pennsylvania, where they're spending lots of money trying to stop it from spreading out of there. And many grape growers in Ohio are getting pretty scared about this whole thing. Uh, the a spotted lanternfly because the pest has been spotted in some Pennsylvania counties along the Ohio border. And grape growers in other Midwestern states cannot relax since they are all watching and worrying and all that because of trains and cars and trucks and planes and all sorts of stuff that travels around and they could carry it with them. A little small bug, not very big, but enough to cause devastation to vineyards. Now, uh, it's a public awareness that really causes, you know, the best thing to prevent this is let the public know what's going on. The public helps stop it. Preventing the spotted lantern fire from coming into your state is always a good approach. And since we have millions of people in Ohio to fight this, then it would make sense that the grape industry is concentrated around a half million dollars toward the eradication or, well, the surveys and stuff for the spotted lanternfly and being sure that it is being watched and being controlled. SLFID cards were printed to help folks spot the pest, and it's important to be able to identify all the stages of it, including the egg mass, the immatures, and the adults, since it is in different forms. Uh, for an informative fact sheet on SLF identification on it, you can go to HTTPS semicolon backslash backslash IS dot GD backslash OSU underline SLF. That will get you to a site there that will give you information on the spotted lantern fly and tell you all about it and and uh, all the information on it, how to kill it. Uh, remove the trees and the vineyards, one type of thing to do. Uh, another one is uh, effective grapevine killer, uh, not really the spotted lantern fly. Uh, is not a fly, so it is has one generation a year, and the female lay eggs in autumn, eggs then hatch in spring, and the next year. So they go through the winter and they make it through the winter. So this, uh, if you are in those areas, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, anything like that, Kentucky, Tennessee, you would be best if you knew the type of bug you're looking for, what it looks like in its different stages, and different things about it. So I will post this website, this link, up on our Facebook page, and so you can check it out, follow it into where it uh, tells you about the bug and all that stuff. So Spotted Lanternfly, it's uh, we first reported here what about six months ago, I guess it's been, and it has not gotten any better during that time, uh, much to everyone's dismay. All right, uh, two two wildfires. Oh my gosh, wildfires! I'm I'm going to hit a little bit on wildfires right now, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more of it later because I don't have all the sites. I got a bunch of information on wildfires here, but these are articles that have been in the local newspaper and it's uh, it, one of them says wildfire season got an early start and it says it's usually 
not for another month or two before we start getting the lightning spark fires that are going to, well, new levels, uh, new uh, historical levels. And the uh, complications from the coronavirus has helped deplete crews and causing all sorts of different problems. Historically, September and October, when you start experiencing the largest of the fires, so to be in the middle of August when they started, and have the second and third largest wildfires in the state's history is somewhat scary. They are saying that it's uh, too soon for it to be that big, but yet it is that big. Cooler temperatures are helping firefighters begin to corral the three largest fires uh, from August the 15th when they were ignited. So far, as of the end of August, and I'm, I don't know if there is an update. I haven't seen one. Uh, the blazes have killed at least seven people and burned nearly 1,300 1, homes and other buildings. And it has prompted evacuation of an estimated 170,000 people. Just devastating. We did talk last week. And uh, we we ask, uh, uh, oh, geez, you know that's I I am doing absolutely horrible in trying to remember names. It is, oh, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, I'm doing terrible. I have to remember names. Uh, uh, let me see who. Not Jim, not uh, uh, boy, here we go. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not there. Oh my gosh! No matter where I look, I can't can't find his name. Um, that's terrible. Here we go. He, his name has to be in the Randy. Oh my gosh, yes, Randy uh, and. and I apologize, Randy, for not knowing your name right away like that. It's just horrible. But I, I'm having a hard time remembering names. So, Randy did uh, said last week that they haven't really been affected by the wildfires there in Kendall Jackson. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to uh, someone else out there, and they said that uh, in uh, Sculpture, and they said that the uh, – Fires gives a little haze in the air, but it has not burned anything. So, and then I've got another email that came in is from someone who said that they live in Palm Springs and air quality is horrid there, but that's about it. Nothing more. Just the smoke has it's been so bad. What gets me about these wildfires that is really a eye-opening thing about the smoke is the smoke itself has been historically bad this year. It's one of the worst smoke events for a wildfire that we've had. And because of that, it's creating all sorts of problems. My daughter, who lives in Ogden, Utah, came down. She was down uh, not last weekend, the weekend before last. And we were talking, and she said, flying back to Salt Lake City, they were about an hour outside, an hour and a half outside of Denver, flying west, at a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. And the smoke was so bad at that altitude that the plane was pumping it into the cabin. And the filter systems for the AC and all that could not keep up with the amount of smoke. Captain came online and said, you know, please be patient. We should be out of this within the hours. It's just the smoke from the wildfires. And she said within an hour they were back and the plane had caught up with the filters and got it cleaned up. But you know, I mean, 35,000 feet, you got smoke there. And it's just amazing. All the great strides we made on air pollution by not driving because of the COVID were 
making up for in the wildfires. And they're all over the place. They're not just in California, Oregon, and Washington, but they're Nevada and Colorado, Utah. There's a lot of places there. But wildfire season, early start, it is going bad. Uh, historic wildfires have grown uh, in the past couple of weeks, too. You know, the big one that was started out there was a gender reveal party. I'm sure most of you have heard that already. The uh, couple was revealing the gender of the newborn baby, that the, or the soon-to-be-born baby. And for some reason, they started fire, or they, I don't know what they did. Fireworks? No, my engineer just told me it was fireworks. So they were setting off fireworks. Which, you know, you think, wait a minute, this is so dry out there, you crackle when you walk across the ground. Why the heck are you? But they said all fireworks, gender reveal, it was, it is a boy, but they started one of the biggest fires in the state history. So, you know, people, be smart. Uh, the size of the blaze puts it behind only the Mendocino Complex Fire of 2018, which burned 459,000 acres. So, you know, it is dry. Everything's dry. You've got to be careful. But uh, I haven't heard anything about fires affecting a whole lot of wineries and stuff. But I do have some articles here. We'll start looking at those in a little bit and seeing if they have anything uh, about that. Also, flooding. There's some serious floods going on around the country, especially with Sally hitting shore in South Florida, uh, Eastern Florida, and, and down in the Panhandle areas there of all those. Sally has dumped lots and lots of rain, so slow moving that it just hasn't really had a chance just to go through. They said it was, they expected it to head out pretty quickly, but it hasn't. It has been spinning, and now it's finally moving out more, but there's still a tremendous amount of rain that they've had in those areas, which is causing a tremendous amount of flooding. So they're waiting to see how fast that stuff runs out. And when you get to southern states like that, the Pantown on different things, you're really don't have any place for it to go. I mean, it's just, it's all just about sea level there anyway. And so everybody's sitting there trying to pump it in areas that you can't pump it to because it's higher than you are. So it is a problem. So, but other floods, the Yangtze Basin in China is flooding. And this is a, re, a big flood there, too. Uh, there's uh, a uh, waters around uh, Chung, Chunggong City, where the Juling River meets the uh, Arkingansies, always rise with the summer rains, but never like this. And so by midday, uh, this was last week, by midday last week, uh, scores of businesses had to evacuate, and by the afternoon, part of their district, uh, which was the ancient porcelain crafting village, was five feet underwater. And riverside highways vanished, and waves threatened to reach elevated rail tracks, even. So, that is something that's been going on there. It's uh, some serious, serious flooding over there. Uh, they mobilized. Uh, Chinese military has mobilized 1.2 million troops across 17 provinces to help evacuate the 170,000 residents and also reinforce banks and roads. Uh, the flood battle is a practical test of leadership, and they're trying to get everything controlled as fast as they can. But with the rains that they've been having and, and some tropical storms that have been passing through and stuff, it's almost getting away from them. Uh, it says that, you know, you're trying to save restaurants and trying to save so stores and all that. And they said it's 
impractical to move anything outdoors because the streets are all flooded and everything, so it doesn't do any good to do that because it'll just get flooded outdoors. So a uh, problem in China, too, with flooding. The booze boom. Consumers are drinking more alcohol as stay-at-home orders continue around the United States. This is uh, a follow-up, actually, to an article that was written back in May. They uh, said that they expected it to take off and really start showing a lot of drinking. It has the market has climbed by 60 to 65% off-premise uh, of a lot of areas, not just wine, but beer also, and some hard liquor, but not as much. Wine and beer seems to be the home items for people. The cocktails are something you get when you're out at the at the bar and you order the cocktails, but when you're at home, wine and beer seems to be the go-to. And the sub-premium beers like Natural Lights and Keystone gained about 7% over uh, the period. Uh, some foreign beers have jumped up anywhere from 10 to 15%. Uh, some chains that sell wine and beer have seen an increase in those products by as much as 25.5%. It's just, it's amazing. But people, that's what they're doing since it is, they're shut down at home. And the article goes on to say that it's a lot of premium stuff too, a lot of different stuff. People aren't just buying the same old, same old all the time. They're taking this opportunity to try stuff, to try different types of beers and try different types of wines and maybe settle into that and continue to have something that is new and uh, they find that it's uh, interesting and uh, change their drinking habits a little bit. <coughs> okay. Uh, let's see. The bubbly market, champagne, has fallen flat, they're saying. It is, uh, champagne has never lived through anything like this before, even during the world wars. And they've never experienced a sudden one-third fall in sales over 100 million bottles unsold. And major manufacturers uh, predict that the crisis could last for years. That's just frightening when you look at that. We're experiencing a crisis that we evaluate to be even worse than the Great Depression of 1929, said uh, uh, Thibault the uh, Malo of the Champagne Committee. Uh, it's uh, People just aren't buying it. He thinks uh, this is a minority view among producers. The industry couldn't move away from effervescence and be able to produce all sorts of wine as it did in the past, red, white, or still. Um, literally no fizz in the wine, just start producing straight wine and not uh, bubbly. Uh, people don't think it's going to happen, but if the sales continue to fall flat like they are, then it is a possibility. Most of the time, they are pointing out, is because champagne is used as a celebratory drink. It is used on occasions. It is used to be festive. And because of the pandemic, we are not having the weddings. We are not having the social gatherings. We are not having the events. We are not having the openings of stuff that that you would normally have. And so because of that, the uh, – what did I do? Oh, that's what I did. Because of that, then we don't have the sales of champagne or bubbly or yeah, all, all the others. And we won't go into that. We know what we're talking about here. So uh, this is something that uh, the champagne – region of the world, uh, France, is a little concerned about. They have found that it is 
becoming an issue. So far, they said they've lost an estimated $2 billion in sales for this year alone. Uh, it's uh, one-third of the great of all the business in the Champagne region. And they also expect 100 million bottles to be left unsold in the cellars by the end of the year. And they'll probably end up dumping it. I, I don't see them reducing the price because that's not something that the Champagne districts and these big things do. They're not going to say, well, normally we charge you $100 for this bottle here, but because we didn't sell it, we're only going to charge you 50. They just would rather dump it than they would cut back on the price, which to me is ridiculous. I mean, you know, sell it for whatever you can get out of it. But that's not my job to do that. So, uh, let's see, am I getting, okay, I'm going to talk about some other stuff here. Let me go to my proper page here and find a couple other things here to to bring up and to point out and to talk about and to educate you. Okay. Uh, well... Oh, what the heck is this? Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, Wine flaws. Are wine flaws really flaws? Yeah, yeah, they are. But is it good to be bad? This is what this article is. This is out of... Uh, Wine Folly. It's a magazine. It's online. If you don't subscribe to Wine Folly, it's a pretty interesting site there. You might might check that out. But it is a interesting article. Five wine flaws that can actually be good. Uh, tasting wine, it's helpful to pick out the good from the flawed, obviously, uh, but can be tricky. Uh, examples of wine flaw vary. And each person has a different natural threshold of perception. So in wine, there are seven primary flaws. What's interesting is that winemakers can often use some of these flaws to benefit the wine or create different flavors. Which, yeah, this list goes over five of those flaws. Different Sometimes the flaw really isn't a flaw, so we'll also teach you how to spot the difference. Okay, oxidation. This is exposure to oxygen, and this causes oxidation. When it is done intentionally, winemakers allow a moderate amount of air to interact with the wine during the winemaking process. This usually prevented by this is usually pre- Excuse me. This is usually prevented by topping barrels as some of the wine evaporates. Oxidative winemaking typically foregoes this step. So if you want oxidated wines, you don't top off the barrel. I'm sure most of you have had oxidated wines. Oh, but what does it taste like? Oxidated wines are all about umami. The oxidation process actually causes an increase in glutamate, an acid related to MSG. All right, now y'all going, oh no, MSG, but you know, wait here. Earthy, nutty, yeasty, and savory aromas mark these savory and intriguing wines. A dried fruit character is also usually present. So I'm sure you've got this nutty or yeasty. These are these are good things, earthiness. Many white wines in France's Euro region, known as Sauvignon wines, use this technique. This includes the region's complex and delicious signature wine, Vin Huan. This is also used for Oloroso styles of sherry, as well as tawny port, Madeira, 
Rencio Sec, and some old school white rojos, which is a quite a list there. Many orange wines use oxygen exposure during the skin contact stage in open top fermenters. I'm hopefully we're going to be doing a uh, program on orange wines here uh, in October. When oxidation is a wine flaw, careless or unsanitary winemaking exposes the wine to oxygen during fermentation or aging. It's also a problem when a cork's seal leaks due to improper storage. If you notice faded, dried out, or cooked fruit aromas and a brownish hue on everyday red or white wines, or young vintages, you might be suspicious. That's always the first thing I tell people to do. Once you get that wine poured in your glass, tilt it, look at the edge. You don't want discoloration. You don't want a brown or yellowish or any type of off. You want that to be a uh, nice, clean edge there, nice, clean edge for your uh, for the wine. If it starts showing you colors, it could be oxidized. In Madeira, the uh, estufagum phagium process used for inexpensive wines involves heating the wine in the temperature-controlled tanks. For higher-end wines, the Contrero process allows the sun to heat barrels stored under the rafters of warm winery attics. Because of these methods, unintentionally heated wine is often referred to as Madeirized or just cooked. You may have used that term or heard that term. This wine is cooked. It's just, and you can taste. What is a cooked wine? Heat is often used in tandem with or in place of oxidation and creates similar results. Typical aromas include dried fruit, spice, roasted nuts, cocoa, fruitcake, and smoke, and not wildfire smoke. These wines tend to show some burnt caramel characteristics. So when you use heat as a benefit, the Madeira is a great place to start. Heat is also used to produce Rancho Sec, a sherry-like wine made on both sides of the French Catalan border, often from variations of the Grenache grape. Because they are already cooked, these wines have the added bonus of being virtually immortal once opened. In mortal wine. When he is a wine flaw, wine can accidentally can be accidentally heated when stored somewhere that is too warm. This can also occur when shipping in hot weather without proper temperature controls. This can cause wines that would otherwise be fresh and vibrant to have cooked or cloying roasted fruit flavors. You go down to Arizona in the summer, you love a wine, you say, oh, ship me some of this. They won't do it. They will wait until it cools down. Uh, here in Florida, if somebody lived somewhere and they ordered wine from me in the hot months, I usually wouldn't ship it. I'd tell them to hang on until it got a little bit cooler because... The way these shipping things are, you know, the wine's going to get cooked. And believe me, it does. Brettanomyces. Uh, Brettanomyces, or Brett, is a strain of wild yeast introduced naturally to the wine in the cellar. Now, this is also referred to as a house style. This ambient yeast can be anywhere on the equipment in the barrels, on the grapes. So it's really hard to control this. That's why you clean, 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 and even then, you can still get Brett. Brett can make wine smell and taste a bit like barnyard. And that's really... I've had wines I've tasted, and I'm going, oh my gosh, this is it's like a, like a donkey pen. And that's just what it smells like. Or it could be an old sweaty saddle or old socks or band-aids or wet dog or cured meat um, wines with bread often referred to as funky and this is going to be a compliment or an insult I've always looked at it as an insult I don't want my wines to have bread but 
The key to good bread is moderation. While some people can't tolerate it in any concentration, others find the dose of it to add complexity. There are no hard and fast rules, but there are instances where winemakers allow bread to exist in moderation. For example, many wines of the Southern Rome and some Italian Barbera and Sangiovese wines and wines made by a few old-school Napa and Bordeaux producers, especially older vintages, will have bread. I just, I, I'm not a fan. I'm sorry. At its worst, bread is a symptom of microbial spoilage, sometimes due to lack of cleanliness in the winery. That's why I say clean, 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 clean. While bread can be appalling in some red wines, it is definitely considered a flaw in the white and sparkling wines. It's also problematic whenever it is so overwhelming that the wine lacks all other characters, which can happen. Brett will take over. Volatility. Volatility, or VA, comes from the acids in wines that occur in the form of gas rather than liquid. This makes VA perceived by smell and not by taste. This can result from excess exposure to oxygen during the winemaking process enabled by a type of bacteria called acetobacter. The most common acid in the wine is acidic acid, otherwise known as vinegar. Unsurprisingly, wines with VA can taste a bit like vinegar, but sometimes in a good way. Think of a fine balsamic or even kombucha in, other, in small doses, this can add a pleasing tartness and fruitiness. It also offers heightened characters and complexity. A thin line, though, there, people. Let me tell you, a very thin line to get the proper VA and not have it overpowered. It's hard to pinpoint where you might find VA in a wine, but if you see the words lifted or high-toned in a wine description, that may be a clue. It's also more common in sweet wines, especially when botrytis is present or those made from dried grapes. So look for it in port, Sauternes, Amarone, uh, Vallabicella. Uh, VA is also more likely to occur in wines made in older barrels or fermented in oxidative environments. When there's too much VA in the mix, wines can smell a bit like paint thinner or nail polish remover. I, I always have smelled the nail polish remover aroma. It's especially pronounced when a wine does not have enough tannin, body, or alcohol to stand up to the VA's intensity. By the way, some sniffers have incredible sensitivity to VA compared to others. So again, this flaw could be in the eyes of the beholder and one last one here is pyrazine or methoxypyrazine, or shortened to pyrazine, is a chemical compound that occurs in certain grape varieties, causing herbaceous aromas and flavors. Particularly common in Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Carmenere especially when unripe and can be desirable in small amounts. Winemakers who want a bit of pyrazine character choose to harvest these varieties on the early side. Pyrazine tends to taste green. They run the gamut from green bell pepper to freshly cut grass to gooseberries to canned asparagus. A bit of pyrazine can be attractive to those who enjoy a bit of an herbal quality in their wine. Pyrazine is a signature of the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. That might be why I like the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. They're very good. Particularly in the Marlboro region, is best known for giving these wines a distinctive grassy character. It is more likely to appear in cool climate wines. When the bell pepper flavors are so overwhelming that the wine tastes unbalanced. Like Brettomyces, this is very much comes down to individual preferences. So, there are some common flaws in the wine that aren't flaws, but yeah, they are. 
Everything has to be in balance, and that's really what it boils down to is the balance. You want you want the balance of the wine to uh, give you everything you want on it. You don't want it to be overpowering. So, let's see, what is this? Cork paint that it falls. No. Uh, um, so there's our some you can look at. And like I say, some of those I just don't like at all. I don't like Brit in my wine at all. But, you know, some of them I don't mind at all. I, in fact, I, I think it's nice to have some of the some of the flavors in some of the wines that they mentioned there. Okay. Let's go over to this one. Let's go back to this. And let's see what we got here. Okay. Oh, Whispering Oaks. Whispering, what's happening at Whispering Oaks? Beautiful week at Whispering Oaks Winery. Come and enjoy your week with us. This is came out today. Oh, yesterday. They uh, were looking at some great weather coming up next week, as a matter of fact. They have a concert with uh, Alex Lopez in October. Uh, they have their dinners on Friday and Saturday nights that they do all the time. Uh, steak night. Awarded Best Steakhouse this week, offering... Grilled beef medallion surf and turf, uh, beef medallion grilled shrimp, large baked potato, fresh vegetables, baked beans, plated salad or soup, and fresh baked bread. Twenty nine fifty per person plus tax, gratuity, and any alcohol you get. They do that all the time. It's well worth the trip up there. They're located just west of Gainesville in north, north, north central, I guess you would call it, Florida. And they also have yoga that they uh, put on yoga classes. $15 per person include class, glass of wine, or beer of your choice. And they also have uh, concerts coming up and a great place for weddings or gatherings or anything. It is winesofflorida.com, 352-748. Oh four four nine and Whispering Oaks there. Okay, in Oxford actually, just west of Gainesville. That area there. Okay. Oh, while I'm talking about wineries, that's figuring on Castle Ridge. They're located in Iowa, southern Iowa, actually southeast Iowa. Castle Ridge Winery is located. At, uh, where is the address? There it is. 1681 220th Street, Leighton, Iowa. Leighton. Leighton. Uh, they have their normal stuff going on. They're open up again, doing tasting. They have uh, uh, food available. The, what they're featuring now is chicken piccata pasta. And... Uh, Suggest pairing that with your dry white wine. The Iowa Cheese Board is uh, also uh, celebrating there. South East Iowa, cheddar cheese. North and West Iowa, Gouda. I didn't know it was divided up that sharply in Iowa, but obviously it does. So, uh, we've got... Uh, that gift certificates uh, half off on shipping. Iowa Candiglo White, that's a new one. And fermentation. So let's see, wine by the glass and food service are not available at Tassel Ridge Winery at this time. Winery is open for to go only purchases of bottles or cases of wine and prepackaged items like jelly. Dipping oils, sauces, and cheeses for off-premise consumption only. All right. And they can ship to Iowa, Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Minnesota, Missouri, Texas, and Washington, D.C. So Tassel Ridge Winery. And I thought I had another one here. Uh, 
Tablas Creek. Tablas Creek has a blog that they send out. My headphone just fell off my head. Uh, Tablas Creek has a blog that they send out every week or so, and uh, it's a very good blog. They have the information on there about what they're doing, about all the stuff they have around there, all the things that they are doing this past week, what's happening with the winery and all that. So if you have not signed up for it yet, I highly recommend it. It's it's an easy read. You can read through it in five minutes, and it's very informative, something that you can enjoy and learn something about uh, wines and wineries and all that. Uh, This one here, they talked about the Regenerative Organic Certified uh, Program, or ROC, and it's quite a Quite a program. It's it's worldwide and all that, but they're doing it at uh, Tablas Creek. Tablas Creek is located in Sudbury, Massachusetts, uh, on uh, Boston Post Road. So you can get a hold of them at info at tablascreek.com, and they can get in touch with you with their the information and everything. Tablas, T-A-B-L-A-S, Tablas Creek. And let's see. Uh, here's something that I wanted to bring up. We have talked about phylloxera and the glassy wing sharpshooter for, for years. And this is the latest news I saw. It's a breakthrough study in Europe that can open the door to the end of the curse of the phylloxera. This said the end might be in sight in the long-running war between vineyard owners and their greatest enemy, phylloxera. And it's been around forever. The genome of the phylloxera, an insect that caused plagues that devastated European vines in the 19th century, has remained a potent threat ever since it has been mapped by the international team in uh, University of Valencia. The study was published in the BMC Biology Journal. The work opens the way for changing how viticultures combat the pest, and it could eventually lead to resistant stock, eliminating the need for costly grafting. Yay! The article goes on and says, that uh, it has been working on this for quite some time. They are finding ways that it is resistant to it. It's not grafting. It's just the plant itself is just resistant to it. You don't have to worry about uh, doing it. An An analysis of the genomic gene sequence of the Flocker nuclear DNA reveals that the existence of the largest gene family ever identified in the genome, around 2,700 genes, when 200 are rarely exceeded. This is represent 10% of the insect's genome. So these genes are probably essentially for interactions between the flocks and the vines encode the small secreted proteins known as effectors, and that's what's causing a problem. So it has so many, so many genomes, 2,700 compared to around 200, which is average, that that's why it's been so difficult to try to beat it or to to try to do anything, because once you start finding ways that you can possibly beat it, it starts finding ways to mutate and to not be beat. So... A tough little bug, but maybe, maybe we are finding something that will work and we can improve our interaction with the flocks right here. Let's see. Uh, ooh, Tablas Creek. Here's another. Is this one with the charge? 
no. There's one that has some great, great charge on it. Uh, let's see. Is it here? I had an article that had information about champagne. And for some reason, I have lost... Oh, here we go. Top Sparkling Wines for 2020. Let me go through this list with you here. Start top. We're heading into the holiday season. So in the holiday seasons, is usually champagne or sparkling wines or whatever. And this is uh, the top sparkling wines of 2020. And these are, you know, most of them are reasonably priced, except for the first one. And this is reviewed by Beverage Dynamics magazine. They said the top one, best of all of them, is the five-star Maryland Cuvée Chahalem. 2011, 97 points out of Oregon. Best domestic champagne or sparkling wine ever made, they said. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, $60. Creamy, rich finish, $60. Next one, uh, 97 points also. Bernard Remy, Grand Cru Blanc de Blanc. This is out of France, 4350 Besret de Bellafon Blue Brut out of France, $96.60. Rakim Brut Nature Espamante Rosé, 2014, out of Portugal. Uh, top producers there, and they said they made a fantastic one here in uh, a bubbly, only $29. Tedinger Brut La Francisis out of France. This is forty nine ninety nine. Why don't they just say fifty? Moenta uh, Luxury Cortes out of Italy, thirty five dollars. Uh, Prosecco Superior. Rodera Estate Brute, California, twenty five dollars. Vibrant and creamy bubbles to last the palate. Ripe fruit with a hint of spice. Gret Brut Rosé out of New Mexico, 93 points, $18. And let's see. Prosper Malfaux Crement de Bourgogne Brut Rosé out of France, $19. Piper Sonoma Brut Rosé, $22. Ferrari Rosé out of Italy, $35.99. Villa Sandy Prosecco Superior out of Italy, $21. And Gret Brut Non-Vintage out of New Mexico, $92.15. So there's a list of champagnes or sparklings, if you will, that are well-priced and listed on a good uh, some of the better ones to try this year so keep those in mind you can always refer back to the program on archives if you didn't get it and let's see and then one more thing here I'm going to go through how do you taste champagne uh, I know you just pop the thing open and swallow it but there's there's ways to do it and the ways, you know, that enhance the flavors and to enhance the taste and to enhance everything. And actually, it does help it. Identify the aromas. Take note of the bubble, finesse, and acidity and other basic wine traits. And conclude about how the components of the taste create balance or imbalance with the aroma. That's how you should do it you know but we all know that the best way to taste champagne is just to enjoy it just you know taste it smell it 
you're getting all sorts of stuff. Let the bubbles tick your nose, tickle your nose and swallow it. And it doesn't have to be champagne, any of those uh, Primant and uh, Proseccos and all of those. There's a lot of different ones out there, and all of them are always a fun fun drink. Okay, let's see if there's anything. It's getting 7.55, so I think I'm getting pretty close to ending because I got myself a big pot of hot chili waiting for me. And I've been smelling it the, the entire show. It's almost got the better of me now. All right, let's see what else we have here that we want to cover tonight. Uh... 2020 tasting notes for Ron Rubin. Oh, here we go. Ron Rubin from uh, uh, Ron Rubin Winery. Uh, Joe is the winemaker there, Joe Freeman, and he always sends out a newsletter every month. And he has a little thing here on the impact of the wildfires. This is three of the past four years have seen significant wildfire activity in Sonoma County during the months of August, September, and October. These are the months we associate with harvest, when the wine grape crop is ripening and the wines are fermenting in the winery. As I write this, a haze can be seen in the distance. A subtle wood smoke smells are present in the air. The Wallbridge fire is still burning and smoldering a mere two miles from the Russian River itself and only six miles from our state vineyard and winery. Fortunately, it is currently contained behind well-constructed dozer and hand lines, with hundreds of firefighters patrolling the lines day and night. The final evacuations of residents along the river were lifted on August 30th, and we have returned to a more typical late summer weather pattern in the Western River Valley. Cool, foggy mornings and moderately warm, sunny afternoons are anticipated, allowing for gentle ripening of our Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grapes. Just what we hope for during the final weeks of the vines. Despite dramatic coverage in local and national news on the fires and some very real and dramatic individual losses, wine producers were able to make some very impressive wines in 2017, 2018, and 2019. We're proceeding with diligence and it if our analysis suggests that the grapes were unaffected by the smoke generated by this year's fire, we'll proceed with harvest, crush, and fermentation, holding high hopes for the potential of this vintage. While we continue our vineyard checks and sampling of the ripening Pinot Noir, preparations have continued at a rapid pace in the winery. So, there you go. That's uh, Russian River area. Northern Sonoma, so it's uh, issues all over the place. This is this is from when? Let me see how long ago this was written. Uh, this is a month ago. Yeah, so so uh, it seems to be clearing up now. From what I can see, not a whole lot of vineyards were affected by the fires. Most of them keep it pretty clean around the vineyards and on the edges around it and all that, so they don't have to worry about having all this undergrowth that's going to burn right to the edge of the vineyard and then on over into the vineyard. So they watch for that and keep it pretty clean. So that's one thing about the wineries. They are doing an excellent job at keeping the incidence of wildfire down because it can be devastating to the wineries itself if they're if they're not diligent in their coverage of what they're doing. So, I think we're done. Uh, this this episode, again, we weren't on Facebook or Twitch. Uh, we were only on the blog, talk, um, Blog Talk Radio, because Mike is the one that always hooks that up, and Mike was not able to be on the program tonight. So, if you are used to listening to us on those and you have to tune in over on archives on Vlog Talk Radio and you can listen to everything there. What's coming up tomorrow is if you're part of our Jewish family listeners, Rosh Hashanah 
Hashanah begins at sundown tomorrow. And then next Tuesday is the first day of autumn. So we got that coming up. And then the 27th, well, I have a show before then, but the 27th is Yom Kippur. So we got some Jewish holidays coming up here. And the first day of autumn, which is means that we're going to have to dig out our parkas and, you know, hooded sweaties and all that other stuff to prepare us for the winter months ahead. So, we're done for the night. Have yourself a wonderful week. Be careful out there. Wear your mask. Everybody's supposed to be wearing them, so wear your mask. And be safe and Drink lots of wine. If you know anybody who wants to be on the program, let us know. We'd be happy to get them on the program. And we'll see all of you next week with uh, Mike and me back on the show. Next week is, what, the 24th? Yeah, 24th. So have a safe week. Drink lots of wine. See you next week. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.